Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts, and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to episode 99 of the Bulak podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay in Amman, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Marshall Links Quayley in Rabat. On today's episode, we are going to uh, be talking about the Egyptian writer Hamdi Abu Ghulayl, who passed away unexpectedly on June 11th. This was a shock to all of us um, and uh, a great loss. We have done a previous episode on a wonderful novel of Apugolayos called The Men Who Swallowed the Sun, and we'll be rerunning that episode as part of this one. Uh, But before we get there, we want to spend uh, some more time talking about his other work and his life, uh, his really unique talent and uh, and, uh, unique trajectory. Uh, so, uh, yeah, we wanted to share a bit more about, um, this writer who we both knew and we both appreciated very much. Yeah. And I'd like to start just with a little thumbnail sketch, uh, of Hamdi's biography for people who don't, don't know him. Hamdi was born in 1968 and he didn't go to university and instead he worked, including as a journalist and published his first short story collection in 1997, and his first novel, Thieves in Retirement, in 2002. And uh, Mohamed Khair, in, in, a, in a reflection on him in Recife 22, called him Hamdi the Nihilist, Hamdi the Sarcastic, Hamdi the Theoretician of Impotence, the Advocate of Surrender. Um, and I think we'll um, expand on, on those things a little bit. He was also a, a sort of a slow writer, uh, a considered writer, He published four novels and three short story collections, along with a memoir, a book for children. Um, His most recent novel, published novel, was My Stone Hands, which took him 10 years to complete. 
Uh, and at the time of his death, he was writing a novel that he was calling Dick Ummi, uh, which he talked about in a number of interviews, including one um, uh, with Ibrahim Fauzi for Arab Lit. And apparently, I read elsewhere that Darasharuk was nervous about the title, but he insisted on it. And I know that he loved a well-crafted title. How would you translate that? Oh, um, my mother's cock, I guess, is my, my preferred We should let people know what it means, yeah. <laughs> my mother's rooster is how we translated it on. Arab lit, but I think maybe my mother's cock is a better translation. Um, mm. And he was planning for this novel to be about his mother. Uh, he was part of the 90s generation, and he wrote novels that sort of center his own experience, and that was an important part of his literary project. And among the writers whose work inspired him when he built on are Egyptian writers Ibrahim Aslan, Mohammed Mustagib, and Khairi Shalabi and also Moroccan writer Mohamed Shukri and Palestinian Emil Habibi. I think just the other thing that's important to mention about him is that um, he came from a, a Bedouin community uh, yes. in southern Fayoum, and uh, uh, the stories of his tribe, his village, his family feature prominently in his writing. Um, he, you know, it was within living memory of that community that they had been for more or less forcibly settled. Um, but the, their Bedouin identity was still quite strong. Um, and so he, um, came to Cairo as a young man, um, really, you know, on his own to actually work like menial jobs and try to pursue a career as a writer. Um, so he was, really an outsider in a lot of ways uh, to, to Cairo, to literary circles, um, to, you know, the sort of middle class intelligentsia. Um, and, uh, and, and that's part of, I think, what, what made him and his writing and the stories he told quite unique. Right. But I think, and I think ultimately he was really embraced in, in the literary community. Uh, and, and he, although he really, you know, also managed to sort of get in there and, Duke his way out inside the literary community as well and carve a space for himself. Um, ab about his sort of Bedouin, um, he uh, uh, sort of identity, I think, you know, he, uh, he said in, in the interview with Arablet, you know, that he's a writer without a cause, but he said, uh, sometimes though I feel responsible for the Bedouins since if I hadn't written about them, including myself, we would have remained in the shadows. So I think he did see himself as sort of representing this community in some way. Um, as as well as workers and uh, and migrants and all sorts of other people. Yeah, I was rereading uh, a couple his books yesterday, and he also has funny stories about trying to write about this community and mm. either either feeling like he didn't get it right, or he has like a funny aside in one of these books about like writing what he describes as like a very sentimental story about like a heroic uncle of his and then like pissing off his entire family, like everybody being mad at him. <laughs> um, I'm not, I'm not sure why, but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a complicated endeavor and a responsibility, I think, to, to tell these stories. Um, yeah, it's interesting because this, so the, this, the most recent published novel, My Stone Hands, it, 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 he says in several interviews that he felt like it was like his greatest achievement and it was a failure. Um, and it's this sort of, I don't know, he kind of inhabits this wonderful space with it. Uh, 
Yeah. I mean, we should say that he was very funny. He was funny in person and funny on the page. And and I think he prized that humor very highly. Like he aimed for it and he appreciated it and he worked at it uh, very hard. Um, So which, uh, do you remember, I was trying to remember I mean, I I read either uh, Thieves in Retirement or A Dog with No Tail first. I can't remember actually which one. Um, Those are the two other books that are available in English, I think. Right. um, Besides The Men Who Swallowed the Sun. Um, Do you remember like your first impressions of his writing? Yeah. So that it was gritty and vibrant and that the his sort of description you know there's a great sort of colloquialism to it which i think also you know his sort of his three translators marilyn booth robin mosher and humphrey davies i think all worked to bring his orality to the page in in english um uh, he was very lucky with his translators too yeah extremely lucky Yeah. yeah um yeah, I um I just yes, and I definitely remember I think what was the first one maybe a dog with no tail was the first work of his that I read and um I I just remember being struck by the yeah, the the humanity of it the um, uh and 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 the humor of it. It it was often funny. So it's called uh, Le Fer in Arabic, um, which has all these meanings, you know, uh, you know, grammatically the subject, conversationally, it means labor, you know, um, and, and it refers to a large extent to the fact that he's telling stories about a, a time in his youth when he migrated from the village to Cairo and, and worked on construction crews. And so a lot of the stories have that setting of being on these on these crews that are doing like really hard manual labor. And at the same time, he's sort of writing and also imagining a life as a writer. Um, He's very funny about his like pretensions as a writer and how Mm. self-conscious he feels about them. And at the same time, how clearly seriously he does take them Um, and uh, and about going back to the his hometown and lying about what he's doing in Cairo. Um, but also I think there's an element of pride in doing this like very basic physical work. Like it's not a form of selling out and it's not a pretense. And in a way it's sort of like the kind of cleanest work he can do. He sort of Mm. splits his time between that and writing and, and, and he was very dedicated to, to his writing. Like clearly he really, you know, built his life around that. Um, yeah. That and the he most cared to him. so deeply about every word. He, I, I know he was never satisfied with this title, a dog with no tail, um, it, it, that it wasn't as elegant as his original title. Uh, obviously you could not directly translate it into English, but also he insisted it, it's a dog with a docked tail. You know, that's the important <laughs> thing. It's not that it's, there's no tail at all. Um, uh, and, and, and the same thing, you know, the rise and the fall of the Saad Sheen, which became the men who swallowed the sun. But I think he did because that kind of did capture sort of multiple meanings that he was ultimately happy with that one. I think he was quite, you know, he cared extremely deeply about, uh, I, he said, uh, I think that during the process, he spoke at, at Humphrey's memorial service, uh, in February of 2000, uh, 2022, 
and he had a very close relationship with with Humphrey and uh, and apparently they spoke he said that they spoke for an hour a day uh, while it was during lockdown when Humphrey was working on this about uh, about the novel and probably about all sorts of other things as well um, because you know there were so many he said you know some Egyptian readers didn't understand it because of the sort of cocktail of dialects. You know, there was Kyrene, Fayumi, Bedouin, Libyan, Egyptian, some Italian thrown in there. Um, and that, you, you know, um, so they talked extensively about the challenges of rebuilding that in English. Yeah, I think he really um, formally pushed the envelope, mm. um, but did so in a way that was like not arid and not theoretical and not mm, mm, mm. um you know self-important or like playing games for the sake of playing games I mean there's like a lot of you know um sort of postmodern tools to his tool bag and like you know self-aware narrators and like self-referential you know narratives and 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 um this kind of, you know, telling you this quality always of like oral storytelling and then like interrupting the story to comment on the story that he's telling and how successful or not he's being at telling it. Um, but then also just this great narrative momentum to a lot of the stories and also this great spirit of observation. Um, and uh, it, it's very like concentrated. I would say mm. storytelling, right? Mm -hmm. Like every, there's like a mouthful on every page. There's like a lot there. Uh, it really, really moves. Although he did want to, uh, I don't know, yeah, change the form of the novel. And and he he said, you know, something like, um, poets write in free verse. Why don't we, why can't we write free novels too? Um, but, but the sort of the core of that was not to sort of impress the reader, but to delight and entertain and, in, I think in the same way that, uh, you know, sort of, you know, the Bedouin sort of literary mode is uh, orality, the culture of speech, the culture of storytelling and poetry, but narrative poetry. And I think that he was working that the, the power of speech into his into his novels. So when the story these narrative is recursive, it's recursive in I think the same way that you would be speaking and and be recursive and 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 turn on something. Um, so I think you know his sort of innovations in the novel were also I don't know let's say fun innovations. Yeah, absolutely. It also makes me think of. I mean, I, I spent more than one afternoon with him in the offices of the publishing house Merit uh, with Mohammed Hashem and other writers. And there was also that, you know, where, again, that like quintessential, like Kyrene, Egyptian, whatever you want to experience of like sitting around with a bunch of smart, funny people who are trying to entertain each other and one up each other in like the jokes and storytelling department. And that infuses his his narrative mm. voice too right right right, right. um and yeah. uh his his book uh thieves in retirement is uh is is also draws on his experiences in the city it's set in manchayat nasser which is a, a, a sort of informal neighborhood um poor neighborhood uh near helwan and 
and it's the story, uh, you know, he has a pretty autobiographical narrator who is an, an immigrant to the city. And it's all about his, you know, fear and fascination and awe and contempt for this like crazy family that owns the building that he lives in. Um, and, and his stories about them and about his relationships with them and, and also a sort of portrait of the really like, not just, you know, economically insecure, but also like socially contentious sort of mm. environment that you mm. have in a neighborhood of Cairo where a lot of people come from elsewhere and like relationships have to be negotiated on the fly. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, a fair amount of like criminality and conflict uh, and, uh, and, and people just, you know, trying to trying to live their lives or get ahead in one way or another. And again, it's all depicted with a lot of humor. Um, and uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but he very kindly, when I was doing a piece about the city of Cairo, took me to this neighborhood uh, for like a visit, um, you know, and, uh, and, we, and sort of to talk about the Ashwaiyet, about the informal neighborhoods of Cairo and what they're like. Um, and I remember him saying something like, I don't understand what people mean when they talk about me as like a marginalized writer or this being a marginalized point of view. Like we're all marginalized in this country. Like there is mm, no mm. one's at the center. This is the kind, this kind of a neighborhood is Cairo. This kind of a life is Egypt today. Like, you know, um, uh, and, and I think he makes, you know, he did, um, you know, make that point very subtly with his writing of like, you know, bringing those kinds of stories and voices and scenes uh, and putting them at the center of literary work. Yeah, absolutely. But he was not pedantic about it at all. No, and he was so very I, lighthearted. <laughs> Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, um, Mohamed Khair, who sort of was the co-winner with uh, Hamdi uh, of the most recent Banipal Prize for Literary Translation, wrote um, uh, kind of sweet little capsule moments of remembering Hamdi at Rasif 22, and we'll link to that. And 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 all uh, many of them, uh, you know, show his, sort of his the aspect of him as a as a sort of funny raconteur, uh, I, I I found one of them particularly amusing. That so he won the the uh, Nagim Mahfouz Award in uh, two thousand nine, I think, for for El Fail, uh, which became a dog with no tail. And it was reported in the press, I guess, that it, he won this big ten thousand U.S. dollar prize uh, when in when in fact it's actually a Ten, it was at the time a ten thousand dollar prize, a symbolic monetary award to go with the prestige of the name of Nagim Mahfouz. But uh, you know, he he suggested that you, that um, you know, the press just couldn't believe it was so small, so they tacked on another zero, and that he that he you know laughed and told uh, Mohammed Khair, of course, when I win an important prize, its reward must be you know is symbolic. Such is my luck. <laughs> so he's, you know, got these, Mohammed Khair has these sweet little moments remembering him uh, uh, on this, in this, um, in this piece. And, and you've run something on Arab Lit, and I'm sure there are going to be um, 
other pieces by other people. Mm. Like you mentioned also, I think he had a close relationship with all of his translators. I know that Robin Mojer, who's a friend and uh, a former roommate in another life and, and translated his novel, that they became thick as thieves. I mean, I think he was a really fun person to spend time with and a fun person to talk to and um, really engaging. Uh, and I, I, I know that as like a young um you know, journalist and critic who's very kind and very open um, and uh, and very curious about my curiosity, you know, in, in his work and in the literary scene in Cairo. Um, so I think, I mean, he's going to be missed by so many people. Absolutely. Every writer who I've spoken to uh, uh, since his, his passing, who who I mentioned him to has said, Oh yes. You know, I either, I knew him for a long time or I just met him a couple of years ago. He was so kind to me. Uh, everyone said, uh, and Marilyn Booth had just been talking to him about potentially translating my stone hands. So I hope somehow that continues to go forward. I do too. He also wrote a book about Cairo, like the yes, streets yes, and stories yes, of Cairo that yeah. I would very much like to read. I hope that all of his work is translated. And and luckily, uh, you know, in addition to the the recently published book, there are, I mean, there are three excellent translations in English of his work. So people who are interested have places to start. Mm, um, yes. And I, and I think, you know, he was really... Um, Really a remarkable, remarkable figure and talent and, uh, and, and, and well worth people's time. And um, I think with that, maybe we will conclude this introduction and, uh, and, and, and go ahead and run our even longer discussion of uh, his, uh, I think you called it uh, picaresque yes. uh, Bedouin's <laughs> epic. Yes. <laughs> um, so we'll conclude there, but uh, there's more to come now. Hello and welcome to episode 82 of the Bulak podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay in Amman. And with me, as usual, is my friend and colleague, Marsha Links-Qualey in Rabat. Hello, Ursula. Hi. Um, and today we're going to be talking about two books that are both from Egypt and both in some way about migration. Um, certainly one is very much about the experience of migration and the other one is about that experience among others. Um, so these are the book, The Men Who Swallowed the Sun by Hamdi Abu Ghulayl. Uh, this is out from Hupu, uh, the imprint of AUC Press, and translated by Humphrey Davies. And um, the other book that we'll hopefully get to also is Slipping by Mohammed Khair. This is out from Two Lines Press and translated by Robin Mojer. Um, but we'll start with The Men Who Swallowed the Sun, um, which I was interested to read because I'm actually know Hamdi Abu Ghulayl from quite a while back and um, was an admirer of a book of his that won uh, the Nagib Mahfouz Award from AOC Press, I think already like a decade ago, probably. Right, um, which he references in this book, <laughs> in one of the sort of wonderful oral asides that he makes. 
Right. So, and, and, um, th that book and this book are sort of have a lot of autobiographical elements to them. So, although I think they should, they are fiction, they are sort of based on the author's experiences. Um, and this, this earlier book, uh, was called in, uh, in Arabic El Fa'al and, uh, Right. Which just means, I think, the workman, the one who does. Right. Uh, because he worked for a long time in construction in Cairo when he first emigrated to Cairo. Uh, and so they were these, they were short stories kind of about the experiences that he'd had living on the periphery of the city and, and doing this manual work all around the city. And I was very struck with that collection. I remember... Um, and actually then was was very interested at that time in like um, informal neighborhoods in Cairo. Mm. Was doing, um, I, I mean, eventually I wrote my master's thesis on um, the portrayal in literature of, of, of the modern capital city of Cairo, including the sort of margins and the ashwayet, the informal neighborhoods. So I sort of sought him out and, and wrote about that and visited one of the neighborhoods that he had featured in that book which which was a completely informal sort of quote unquote slum neighborhood uh on the outskirts of Cairo. So yeah, so then I was Yeah, and interest interestingly, so that was also published by Hoopo, which was then AUC Press, and the title was changed. And this book that we're talking about today was uh was called Qiemwe and Hiar Sad Sheen, The Rise and Fall of the Sad Sheen, which I understand why they wouldn't want to have Saad Sheen, Al Sahra Al Sharqiya, the name of this this group that um, that is sort of followed through the novel as as the title. But I really like actually <laughs> the original title um, as well. I find it really evocative of of the sort of historical nature of the project. Right. So I so said yes. Al Fal was translated as a dog with no tail. T A L E. Mm. And I liked the Arabic title better. Um, and like you said, uh, here again, the title was changed. And his original title, the Saad Sheen, so these are two letters of the Arabic alphabet, is is the way he refers throughout to this Bedouin community that lives on the border, across the border between Libya and Egypt, and that he belongs to. Um, yes, and it, so I I had to do a little bit of reading up about the Saad Sheen because I didn't know this uh, that there was a name the Al Sahra Al Shaqiya the 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 people of the Eastern Desert, um, and uh, according to so <laughs> there's um, an interesting academic article that we can link to called The Practice and Culture of Smuggling in the Borderland of Egypt and Lib Libya by a man named Thomas Huskin who says that he sort of um, did 20-some, a couple dozen interviews with with people he says are, you know, s some of them see themselves as smugglers and some as traders who don't deal in customs. But in any case, live in this, this um, transnational community. Um, and so he lived among smugglers and, and based his article on on uh, his academic article and interviews with them. And he says that um, the Saad Sheen um, title is, is a pejorative um, and, and that many of the people who are called Saad Sheen reject it as, he says, dishonorable and discriminatory. So I, 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 
I guess after reading that, I sort of re-saw the novel as sort of reclaiming this <laughs> Saad Sheen title, you know, in, an, in a semi-ironic way, you know, in a way of, um, you know, I, I think the whole, to me, the whole novel is built very much on in the same structure as something like the Epic of Bani Halal, these old um, Arabic epics that were told by uh, in, in coffee houses and elsewhere that were orally told and retold and, of course, also written down in, in different forms. Um, but that that begin, you know, that that uh, begin with the story maybe of a great person and like uh, Zata Hemma and, and others that begin with the story of a great person, uh, a hero's birth. And then we see, you know, um, you know, their raids and how, you know, how they struggle, um, you know, either to sort of unite different tribes or for the supremacy of their tribe. And, to me, this is very much a sort of a contemporary remaking of that kind of epic. Um, however, it, it instead of you know you going to raid other people's camels, you are um, selling drugs and um, you know and smuggling and traveling across borders. Uh, you know, there's one point where he says, "Think of his thefts," and and this is. Um, the sort of narrator, the Hamdi Abu Ghalil character, talking about the Phantom Raider, who I think is, um, you know, sort of the anti-hero or hero of the narrative. Think of his thefts as no more than youthful devilry, a phase usually undergone by those whose forefathers' glorious poetry praised their dashing exploits on horseback, plundering or robbing at knife point. So, so to me, this is, uh, you know, although it begins instead of with the Phantom Raver, with the, the story of Gaddafi's, um, Gaddafi's birth, actually, but, um, but I don't think Gaddafi is actually the hero of this particular epic, <laughs> although he figures quite a lot. Right. Well, he's the patron of this particular um like movement, right? Because because right. Hamdi Abu Ghalil explains that that um, Gaddafi gave automatic Libyan citizenship to all the members of this of this of, of a couple, I think, Bedouin tribes that lived there on the border, including the one that he belongs to, um, and so that meant that a lot of Egyptians migrated to Libya and availed themselves. Um, of this automatic right to like go and work and live there. Um, and that's what he narrates, like you said, in this kind of uh, very ironic, modern ep take on the epic. <laughs> right, um, right. I mean, yeah, where the, where, where rather than really heroic activities, I mean, it's a story about men testing themselves in one way or another sort of uh but but the the endeavors that they get into are overwhelmingly criminal and like pretty squalid um kind of funny sometimes uh and but it is driven actually by i think that's where you find maybe the little elements of emotional sadness or depth to the story too is that it is driven by a desire to like prove yourself give your life some sort of meaning, um, be someone, right? 
Right, uh, right. Yeah, exactly. But, it, in the in the sort of origin stories, I think of um, of both Hamdia you know, the Bugulayel's his own uh, origin as as migrating to Libya, and as well as the Phantom Raider, who has many names, who migrates both to Libya and then later to Italy. Um, now I lost my train of thought. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, wait, yeah, so this is a confusing part of the book, though. So the book sort of begins in this kind of burst of narrative energy and momentum, which it actually sustains throughout, right? So it kind right. of throws out at you, like, the history of the Bedouin tribes in Egypt, you know, the history of Gaddafi, like, it's sort of setting the stage for eventually it'll get to our narrator and why he went to Libya in the 70s to this like crazy wild west Libyan town. Um, and then eventually it settles into an alternation between the narrator, which seems to be a double of the author. I mean, he has the author's name and his account of being in Libya and this story, which is also told in the first person, but is seemingly a, a different character. And it, you, as you mentioned, the Phantom Raider, and he has many other nicknames and, and aliases who crosses the Mediterranean and becomes a drug dealer in Milan, right? So you have right. those two alternating narrative threads, which at first I've honestly found hard to tell apart. I thought it was all one character. Um, but I think you're right that they're, it's one character telling his own story and someone else's story. Right. Yeah. And, and he does it in very much an oral style, you know, in this kind of, um, um, as if he's in a coffee shop and uh, telling this to us, the listeners. And I did enjoy how sometimes he would throw in these absolute non sequiturs. Like he, he, he says at one point, he suddenly throws in about Ibrahim Akuni, who is a Libyan author who's lived in Switzerland for, I don't know, 30 years now or something. And who, but who continues to write about, about Libya and, um, and and the Tuareg people uh, living in the in uh, living in the desert, and and he he even says something like, "I'm not even going to apologize for saying for saying here for no particular reason that Ibrahim Akoni is lost." You know, he he's he's writing about imaginary Libyans and imaginary camels. It, it, it's just um, you feel. Uh, I felt at some points that Hamdi was there speaking this story to me. And I, I found that those little um, authorly asides wonderful and funny. Yeah, I, I mean, it definitely has the quality I think we both enjoy, which is like a, a very strong voice. Mm. Um, and uh, just to give a very sh uh, a short sense of what this voice is, like, for example, so he, he goes and he picks this town, Sabha, which I'd never heard of, but apparently it's um, ruled mostly by Gaddafi's family at that time. And this is how he describes it, partly. And he says, Sabha pollulated with the vermin of nations, mm. pollulated with the vermin of Africa, Arab Africa and African Africa and mixed up Africa. The people from the bottom of the heap were there, right there at the bottom of the heap. Even the rulers were from the bottom of the heap. 
relations of the leader and commander, but not part of the stable elite that surrounded him in Sirte. Most of them little no-account Bedouin from Egypt, Tunisia, Chad, and Niger, and making themselves out to be Libyan. The quintessence of the people the leader himself manufactured, for himself and as his personal property. And then he says, Applying my philosophy of always taking the seat at the back of the class, I crossed the whole of Libya and came to a stop in Sabha. Then I left the rest of Sabha behind and settled down among its most dangerous criminals. And, you know, he just then he goes on to like describe, you know, this, this he's, 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 he's bootlegging, he's living in a brothel. He's, he's supposedly this kind of like innocent in the midst of all these like hardened criminals. Um, and, and you get the tone, like it's the opposite of romantic and heroic. Um, right. Yeah. He calls himself a naive soul in a pack of rogues, although he doesn't seem naive at any point, but he does, he does a, like a fantastic job of mocking himself of saying, you know, he never, like he never realized that the shaft was going in into him until it was all the way in. Right. And no, I mean, he seems, it's really as the story of a survivor, like an all out survivor who always like manages Um, but also I suppose it's a story, I mean, by his own definition of a fuck up, like he also (laughs) never, he also never kind of both of the stories, right? I mean, they leave home to become millionaires to achieve this kind of like dreamt of success to come home, like as the big shot, uh, to live in a villa. Yeah. A huge, huge uh, um, imagination of what it's going to be like. Um, and even though, yeah, the Phantom Raider, he gets to Italy uh, and he does like make huge amounts of money. He also loses huge amounts of money very shortly afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the stories, the, the stories of the, Ita- the, the drug trade that is engaged. So it's, it's, all you know migrants from all over uh north africa and eastern europe uh in milan uh running these these various drug operations and in and out of prison and i mean there's a level of violence throughout that is really shocking i mean and fascinating of course it it creates a lot of the drama of the story uh but from the beginning in the Libyan town, there's just so much male posturing and kind of endless, pointless, uh, you know, threatening and beating and extortion and like as if they can't think of anything else to do or any other way to prove themselves, you know, and just, I mean, the two, between the two narrators, they must have like 50 near-death experiences throughout the book. <laughs> right, right. But I think, you know, in part, that's the, that's the epic of your, you know, you're, you are, you're proving yourself with your dashing exploits on, on horseback or camelback. Um, but w- one of the things that I, you mentioned that there are all these, you know, there's the, I don't know, there's the Armenians and there's the Romanians and there are all these these groups, particularly in Italy, who are part of this uh, this underclass or or this um, you know in, in 
non-legal well, they're all, they're, they're all there illegally and they're right. all engaging in illegal activity and they're all kind right of, but so know. if you met if i imagine this is the rise and fall of the sajin as a kind of a, a history it's like this wonderful not it's not an egyptian history you know it's not like a national history it's all a history um of all these uh you know that sort of belies sovereignty territorially territory whatever that word is <laughs> citizenship um you know that that uh, a portrait of sort of a transnational history that works against borders and boundaries and official papers and laws um and certainly against laws all the time. Yeah. No, it's very cosmopolitan. I mean, cosmopolitanism doesn't have to be an upper class thing. It's an extremely right. like in international, like mixed book. The other thing that I think is sort of, you know, rings true. Of course, you read a book like this, you have you have no familiarity. I mean, I don't with this kind of experience. All you can experience is whether it feels true or not. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it does. It has this voice and it really like has this texture kind of right of, of, of someone's experience, of course, like filtered through a sensibility. But the other thing is there's all, he talks a lot about all these different communities and he interacts with and goes into business and has relationships with people you know from different countries but he also engages in like a lot of kind of like classification you know of the different right. groups yes, like yes like you know don't mess with the i don't know algerians like they're the really tough ones that won't let you mug them and like you know the or these are the i mean it's a lot of classification and who's toughest right but again that feels like the way that men in this world having these experiences would sort of classify each other um, right. So they're sort of crossing those lines all the time, but they're also like redrawing those lines all the time. Uh, and, right, and but redrawing them not in the way that they're drawn by states, I think, but redrawing them in sort of, yeah, these um, local communities that may be held together by ethnicity or religion or, um, or whatever they're held together by. But yes, uh, by relationships, usually um, in, in this kind of like... Um, epic sense of you know who who's related to who yeah i mean there's a lot of negotiation i mean there's acts of kindness and acts of loyalty and then like recurrent acts of betrayal i mean there's there's sort of both of all of that right <laughs> right um but um and it is overwhelmingly a male universe i mean women mm -hmm. feature very scantily uh, and are often, know. yeah, often in the act of being taken advantage of. Although not always, there's a, a uh, there's a Ghanaian woman who shows up, and um, I think it's the the Hamdi Abu Ghalil, uh, the narrate, you know, the the primary narrator asks her, "What is she doing here?" He looks at her as a fallen woman. You know, this is he's got some sort of, you know, right. thing that he mocks of, you know. Morale, you know, old-fashioned morality that he's brought with him, and she says, you know, I, I'm here to work just like you. You know, she manages in a sort of a perfect, uh, or an imperfect, rather Arabic, um, in in a so you know, in a very scornful way. So the women um, appear rarely and often just as you know, saggy breasts being squeezed. Well, I think they do sex workers, right? I mean, yes. that's usually that's a sex predominant workers. experience that they have of them. And then there's some girlfriends in Italy, basically. 
Right. Although, yeah, the girlfriends also also tend to sort of run in the in the same circle of, mm. uh, you know, drug dealing and if not sex work, sort of demi sex work or peri sex work or whatever you would call it. I mean, it's not a. I just not. It's not something I automatically criticize. This dearth of. I, I mm. think it's in the story that he's telling. I think he's trying to be, tr you know, he's trying to represent and be true to like a certain experience. And in that experience, I think that's how the, that's how women are. He's not, women are important in the sense that they're, they're a motivating pleasure in life. It seems right. like to the narrator, right. but there's not a lot of time spent really on thinking about them or describing their character, their feelings. There's much more about the relationships with the other men that you're in business with and doing things with and hanging out with, uh, than, than there is, there's like no, there's no female character with, uh, with, with, with any interiority really. But what I'm saying is I think that's might be a conscious choice. Like he's presenting a certain universe and it's absolutely an overwhelmingly absolutely. macho male one. Right. Right. And, and the sex work is not just um, the sex work of women. There's also sex work available to men, but it, it's portrayed through, I think this um, Phantom Raider character in this extremely macho way, like uh, um you know, like you can be a sex worker as a man, but you know, there's like some humiliation to being on the bottom of, uh, if you're a sex worker working, you know, men with men. Um, although he, you know, the phantom raider at one point sort of, uh, you know, pulls back his shoulders and say, you know, I don't care what you do with your own body, you know, as if he's right. uh, suddenly progressive. <laughs> Right. Well, the, the, the morality of this world is sort of not, not obvious. Right. There are codes of conduct, but, and the narr and because the narrator himself is so kind of like sardonic and like self-deprecating and sort of, it's hard, you know, he, he's not giving you like an earnest account of, uh, his, you know, values or principles or whatever, you know you know what i mean like you have to kind of right, experience right, right. the whole thing to see he's not talking to you about his feelings particularly i mean there's very few moments in which uh you get even the even male interiority right like it's it's, right. it's not, it's not a novel about interiority it's an i, I think in, in the same way that an epic is not about interiority it's about the movement and about the battle and about um, yeah, proving it's yourself action. and finding, right. It's action. Uh, oh, it's okay. action, but it's also so much humor. <laughs> but that's I the thing is really I would use funny. the word picaresque about this book more than like epic. I mean, I don't think it has the tone out of an epic at all. Right. Like, I don't think it has, I think it's kind of an anti-epic, like it's purposely, I mean, it's maybe right, but I think it draws. Tradition. Right, I think it draws from the from the local tradition of of the epic. But yes, in a sort of a picaresque mode, in 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 this sort of ironic tone that it's told in. And it, it, it to me, so it um, I, it made me think about this book that I'd also really liked, 
called African Titanics by an Eritrean novelist, Abu Bakr Khal, uh, that came out maybe in, um, in Arabic in 2008, and I don't remember when it came out in English in Charles Breden's uh, translation. But it follows um, a man named Abdar, who's an Eritrean, and he first goes to Sudan, and then, um, and then crosses the Libyan desert. And, and this book, is also I I highly recommend it, but it's so it's very different. It's very like personal and individual. It is about the portraits of these people that that he meets along this pathway, and it all is also you know sort of not autobiographical. Um, um, the author himself lived for twenty years in Tripoli, and he he had to leave only in two thousand eleven. He's you know one of the you know many. Um, Africans who came from from across the continent and ended up in in Libya, and you, you know initially imagining that they would travel across to Europe, but then stayed. He and then in um, in February of two thousand eleven, I think he ended up in a first in a refugee camp and then in in Denmark. Um, but that novel is so much about the the sort of beautiful portraits of people in these terrible circumstances. So I, I was imagining it as, so the portrait that he paints of being on this, uh, a Zodiac and crossing the Mediterranean is also just as harrowing, but it's, it's like funny and a bit slapstick. And, you know, they, they, they think they see uh, Lampedusa, but actually, no, it's just a big ship. They throw everything overboard so they won't be caught. And then, nope, it was just a ship. They get they, drunk, they go swimming, right, right? and then when the Coastal Guard comes to get them, they're like, argue with them because they don't believe them that they're Italians and they like only want to be taken. But I, that was the scene where I was right. like, you've got to be kidding me. Like your boat is sinking and they're like, we will come <laughs> on board unless you guarantee that you're taking us to Italy. And it's all like, yeah, they're like no Malta, no Malta. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, respect, man. Right, right. And uh, so it is absolutely never this sort of maudlin tale about the emigrant. Not that African Titanics is. African Titanics is extremely moving and specific and individual and psychological. This is, this is um, ridiculous. And the, the migrant is never um, sort of this noble person who's coming because they're leaving their home, you know. But of course, they're they're people all the same who have the same right to go do crimes in other countries. Come on. <laughs> well, I mean, but I think that's what's, uh, that's what's interesting. I mean, one of the many things that's interesting about the man who saw the sun is that he takes the risk of making his main characters unsympathetic and of, yeah. and he's not, he, he doesn't hesitate to show them be, like basically engaging in like antisocial and criminal behavior, which, you know, you might hesitate to sort of write a book that portrays refugees and migrants that way because of like other considerations. But we've talked about how tiresome it is for, 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 for even writers, you know, Syrian writers or others from countries where so many people have emigrated to feel boxed into only portraying, that experience in, in one particular sympathetic way. Um, and, uh, and Hamdi Abu Ghalayl certainly doesn't particularly, 
um, at the same time that through the sheer, like just the, the voice of the story, you, you have sympathy for the, for the narrator. I mean, you care about what's going to happen to them. You're interested in what's going to happen to them. Right. Right. Um, and right. There's, there was a passage that you were going to read that sort of is one of the few where one of the narrators kind of expresses some of maybe what he's feeling all along under this like churning action um, about, you know, being a, being abroad, being alone, uh, you know, sort of trying to figure it out every day from scratch. Right. And this is the Phantom Raider. Another time, I got to know another guy. His name was Ashraf Bunasa from Tatuntu. He was a cocaine addict and snorted it a lot. Even though it was me who'd brought the bunch to the house, I was scared of them. I'd get up early. It didn't matter how late I'd stayed up. I'd get up early because I just had one wish during my life there. What with the squats, the fear, and the drugs, I hoped and I prayed and I begged the Lord, before I die, please let me sleep one night without fear. I'd get high on a couple of joints and I'd sit down on my own and cry over how my life was. It has to be this way. It's no use trying to live any other way. This is the only way I know how to live. I'd have died if I'd have come to this country to be a respectable type and lived off the churches and hadn't done anything wrong. I'd have died. I know lots of Egyptians who haven't done a thing wrong from the moment they arrived. The moment they wake in the morning, they have breakfast at the church and they have lunch at the church and they get their clothes from the church. A life not fit for a dog. I can't live like that. Mohibu Musa, who was a daredevil in Egypt and managed to get by even if he had to steal, wasn't the type to live like that. So I got into drugs and went for it. I'd sit on my own and smoke a couple of joints and look at the sky and cry. I cried because I was scared my goods would get stolen. I was scared the police would pop up out of nowhere and find goods on me and I'd go to prison. I was scared some Moroccans or Tunisians would attack me with cleavers and knives and take everything I had, 20 or 30 or to go. What are you going to do against them? Right behind where you're staying, there's a waste ground where there's everybody, Moroccans, Africans, Albanians, Romanians, God knows who else. And from the day we threw the Romanians out of the place we're living in, other people had their eye on it. A whole villa and great looking. We were scared we didn't go in by the station, so scared we didn't go in by the station door. Instead, we'd open the outside door the one that gave out straight to the street. I'd smoke a couple of joints and sit alone and feel like, I don't know, like you want to go home, but you can't. You haven't made any money. Everything you get is spent on drugs and you haven't sent anything back to your family so you can't go back there, so that you can go back there. Go back to what? And anyway, time's up. You're older now. What are you going to do there? So you go on living in this wasteland, always on edge, on edge, on edge about everything, a strange land and no one to get your back. Yeah, that, there's a that, point at which, right, there's a point at which he says, yeah, the, one of the terrible things is getting killed there and nobody to take revenge for you. <laughs> which, you know? which, yeah, which is specific, which is, yeah, what would, I mean, that is one of the very few points in the book where that narrator kind of, you know, lets down his guard or doesn't just keep, you know, talking about events and, you know, stratagems and, ups and downs. Um, and, and maybe because of that, I found that very, very moving, that point of admission of, of vulnerability. Right. And even the, um, you know, not to spoil it, but he does, I think it, you, they tell us quite early on, but he does go back. Um, 
they both end up back in Egypt. But, uh, you know, it's very much this sort of whole narrative of the rise and fall of the Saad Sheen, who also rise and fall because the leader himself, Gaddafi, rose and fell. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, parts of it, there's not much rise. Like, it just goes to, I mean, it's not like they build an empire and then it collapses. No. You know, one of them, you know, the story where he goes to he goes to Libya, he opens a workshop that produces very bad quality cement blocks and makes his real money off of making moonshine. Um, right. But that's kind of what I love about it. You know, you the rise and fall of the Sajin, like the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. But yes, it's a pretty shitty empire. Anyway, I liked this book a lot. I thought it was very, I was, um, uh, I, I mean, as much as, you know, like, like a lot of, like a lot of, 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 of writing that we're seeing these days, like it does not have a very structured plot. Mm -hmm. Um, it's basically all carried on this, like, you know, voice that approximates, you know, the storytelling orality and it has this kind of abrupt, and, you know, there's no, the plot doesn't get massaged much into place. Like there's, there's not a lot of structure. There's just this kind of flow. Um, but right. It, I imagine it like, you know, hitting record on the, uh, the storyteller in the, in the coffee shop and then just hitting stop at the end. And that's the novel. Right. Um, he even starts it by referring to Osama Dinosaurus, uh, my beloved dog, my old dog. Um, with without really, t <laughs> there's no explanation about who this Osama is. He's a, you know, I I guess the two of them were friends. I imagine, you know, they must have run in the same circles. I didn't, I I uh, unlike you, I didn't I didn't know Hamdi, but um, but without you know, without sort of it it doesn't um make a lot of effort to yeah to to make a tight plot to um to re-edit the book afterwards. I just imagine it as a verbal performance. And and some of them may, I think, maybe, I'm, that's not to say that that's not a purposeful choice because right. I think, you know, like this is a different, uh, considerably different style than his previous book, which is these quite concentrated short stories um, that, that each of one is a, a sort of contained vignette, at least like, again, they, 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 there's not a strong overall narrative arc, but, but it's a quite different style. Um, so I think this is, this is a choice. Um, but I, I, I found it quite, I mean, just, you know, you're, it like really immerses you in these worlds, uh, mm -hmm. which are sort of, uh, fascinating and like I said, like super uh, super disturbing to me. <laughs> I mean, but that's what makes them fascinating. Uh, just uh, uh, that they're slightly terrifying, um, and and it has and it has humor, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think it's yeah. And I, I just think of it. So he de he dedicates it to <clears throat> Suleiman Al Fahta, who he says is a great the great Kuwaiti writer and and historian. Um, and, and I guess maybe that is part of what, he, although he does, you know, sort of very self-consciously begin it with a lot of, um, history of the, um, these Bedouin communities in, in Egypt from the time of the Romans on, on through the contemporary era, um, that I imagine it as, as this kind of transgressive history of people living between 
between borders and uh, unsettled and moving uh, constantly, looking for something. Yeah, I like that transgressive history because you do feel like you're getting, you know, uh, you're getting a, a history, a part of the history of that region, of of those communities that maybe isn't recorded anywhere but in literature and art. And he mentions music and poetry and um, and it's a kind of it's a kind of fascinating uh, record too of like a particular time and atmosphere. Um, right. And not necessarily all high poetry and high music either. You know, there's sort of poetic and musical riffs made off the green book in order to appeal to Gaddafi. But it's this, I, I, yeah, I found it to be this great sort of cultural history uh, of a moment, even though it is also fictional. Mm. Yeah. Well, should we talk a little bit about um, the other book that uh, we also read this past weekend? Yes, yes. Uh, we should say that. So, <laughs> so this past weekend, you finished an issue of ALQ. I don't know how many all-nighters you just pulled to get that together. Right, me and poor Hassan <laughs> going through the pages and the page proofs. And this is your issue on the theme is mirrors, right? Yes, it is the 13th issue. <laughs> cool. Which, uh, lucky 13, I like to think. Um, and oh, it is, I'm yes. a huge believer in lucky 13. Excellent. Mm. Um, and yes, the theme is mirrors uh, from starting with how Al-Jah has described mirrors and sort of his philosophy of mirrors uh, through Andalusian mirrors and contemporary and I guess one of the really one of the things that struck me again and again was the different ways in which male writers and women writers in all the submissions, not just in what we included, uh, portrayed mirrors. Men as associating mirrors more with memory and nostalgia and looking back, and women much more with feeling sort of the mirror constantly around them and distorting their image, and uh, and the mirror sort of you know, constantly telling them who they need to be now presenting a sort of an idealized version. Um, oh. so, and this issue will be out, um, when before this uh, episode airs. <laughs> okay. So by the time you hear about this, the issue right. will be you available. Okay. Right. Yes. And, and you should say where exactly. Right. You can always buy it at arablit.gumroad.com or you can just go to Arablit uh, website and, and find it there. But um, you don't seem loopy at all for someone who I know <laughs> has gotten very little sleep and spent hours and hours and hours looking at text and, and images for the last couple of days. Um, and then on top of that, we had a slight rescheduling thing. And so we actually uh, read this book, both of us, I think like very, very quickly in the last couple of days. So was, I think we're, we're coming off of it quite fresh, right? Yes. Yeah. I, and I actually needed to read this book, the rise and fall of Sajreen, uh, a second time to feel certain which, which parts were in the voices of the, um, the narrator and which voice parts were the voices in the Phantom Raider. And then I, um, I had to do some extra research about this who the Saad Sheen were and um, 
about these communities in Egypt that are of supposedly of, of Libyan origin or really are, you know, came from the, the Maghreb at some point. Um, and I interesting, like I, this. Sorry, yeah, sorry in, go ahead. Interestingly, I, I saw um, a clip from Leila Al-Amr's presentation, I think at Lancaster Lit Fest, um, in which she says, she, you know, she explains why she never glosses the Arabic for she writes in English, but she explains why she never glosses the Arabic for uh, English language readers. She says, um, she, you know, we always talk about literature as you know bringing the um, you know the the Arab world to the English language reader, and you know she said why why doesn't the English language reader also need to come to you know the come to us in in some in some instances you know at least somewhat part of the way. I do feel that in this particular novel, you need, do need to come to the novel in, in some cases. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I read for a couple of pages of Saad Sheen's before, and I, you know, and I know the Arabic alphabet before it clicked. You know how that happens? <laughs> like when you see it, you see a right, word in Arabic word trans it, in, right. in English. And I would just keep being like, okay, the sad shins. All right. Like this, you know, and then finally, <laughs> ah, okay. Okay. I know it and was I, a sad shin, but it was a long time before I realized that meant a Sahra al-Sharqiya, you know, because he says, saw the sad shin, the people of the Eastern desert. And I, you know, I, I, I didn't put two plus two together and get four, sadly. I know me neither, not right away. And I, when I think, and I think, I think, I mean, so what, what Laila Al-Amr was talking about is that you wouldn't put a footnote or in parentheses or try and translate that somehow into English that, 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 you know, that when she's saying you wouldn't, don't gloss it into English, that you leave it, um, as right. is. And, and also in the book, there's a, there's, I enjoyed very much once the, the, the part that's set in Italy, there's Italian words that have been Arabized and are then right. rendered in English. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. at one point he's talking about balats, balats this, balats this. And again, it takes a while and then you're like, ah, palazzo. Like right. it's building in Italian, but then made with a B because of Arabic and then come into English. I, I mean, I find these things delightful, actually. And I think... It's fine if there's no footnote, because if you don't get it, if you don't know exactly where that word's, you understand from the context that it's the name of a place. Right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. And if, if, and as Layla, I think said, if, and then if you have to Google it, that won't kill you either. Yeah, no, of course. Of course. I mean, I think you can also go too far the other way where you purposely put words if you're writing sure, in English, sure. a story that's set abroad and you're sort of like purposely inserting kind of foreign words to yeah, give yeah. No. a texture <laughs> of foreignness to the story where you're like, well, wait a moment, like it's written in English. Why, why, in the, why, why are people so, sort of, why are you interspersing kind of foreign words in here? It's just to make it sound a little foreign. That can happen too. So right, it has absolutely. to be intentional. Right, um, right. right. Yeah, I just was thinking that this was a text that you do need to like make a little bit of effort to to insert yourself into and, and figure out what's going on. But I think that there are rewards to it. And actually, I really enjoyed reading Thomas Huskin's The Practice and Culture of Smuggling in the Borderland of Egypt and Libya. 
to kind of understand the history of the sad gene, which he transliterates literally as S-A-D, sad, sad gene. The so. sad shins. It's like, <laughs> it's like the worst gang name ever. <laughs> well, well, we'll link to that anthropology paper. Um, wait, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about sl- slipping um, because that's the other book that I read this weekend and had been meaning to read for a very long time. Um, so these are both, I think, on on our list. And I think you got to slip in quite a while ago. And um, I finally got the impetus to, to read it. It's been like very, I thought, well-received. Um, this is Mohammed Khair's novel and translated by Robin Moger. Uh, and um, I'll try and give a quick synopsis kind of of the content of the book, which is difficult because the book has a very kind of evanescent plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's the narrator is a, is a young Egyptian man who lives in maybe Alexandria rather than Cairo, I think, and works at a magazine and uh, is sort of given this assignment that involves going to various kind of strange locations with this other older man called Bahar who has come back to Egypt and is doing some sort of project on these at these sites. And so the young magazine writer is accompanying him. And that just allows them to kind of keep visiting these slightly strange and surreal places, um, which include like a spot in the Nile where the, the tide of the river gets so low that it looks like people are walking on water because there's only like a few inches of of water or a building that's like shaking day and night with the sound of this huge nearby construction or this village that's empty because the entire village got up and emigrated all together one night. Um, And these stories, and then there's other stories. So it keeps sort of jumping from story to story. And then eventually the stories have like little points of connection Um, but they're not, you know, there's not, it's, it's very sort of lots of little diversions. And, uh, I wouldn't say that there's like a clear narrative arc. There's also a love story. There's a, there's a woman that he keeps describing a woman that he's loved and seemingly lost, uh, and perhaps by the end of the book recovered. Um, so it's, 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 it's really a a book that's a lot about the creation of a particular atmosphere. Right. And, a lot about its musical and sonic landscapes as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The the description, for example, of, of living in this building that like vibrates constantly to the sound of a huge construction site next door is like, for example, very, very well done. Um, there's, there are these, these beautiful kind of descriptions, these, these sort of surreal places and scenes that stay with you. Um, the, and I mean, it's a completely different kind of book though, stylistically in terms of the voice, you know, it's very melancholy. It's a bit intellectual. Like, uh, it, uh, it kind of wanders around in circles instead of having this like huge forward thrust, mm, right. Of the, right, right. Of the Goliath book. I mean, they're really like, you would normally not compare them. I don't think it's just that since I just read them both, then you can't <laughs> help it. Like they're in your right. mind at the same time. Um, and so you, 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 you think of them, but the one point they have in common actually is that slipping also deals to a considerable degree with the, with the experience of emigrating 
because there's both this scene of this village that decides that if they're going to emigrate, they're all going to emigrate together and they get like a collective bargain price from the smuggler and they (laughs) all go to the ocean one night after surreptitiously kind of selling everything and they disappear and you never find out if they made it or not. Um, that's kind of left hanging. Mm-hmm. And then the the character, this older man called Bahar, as he tells his story to the younger narrator, it turns out that he's someone who emigrated as a young man and spent most of his life abroad and has just come back. Um, and um, there's a passage I could read where he sort of like talks about this experience, um, it sort of seems like the catalyzing thing that made him decide to emigrate was being arrested at a political protest when he was young. And so there's this passage where he describes his parents coming to pick him up at the jail and then how at the same time it was being in jail that had made him decide to like always stay on the move and to, to leave the country, but also to like never settle anywhere. So Mm. maybe I'll read this. Yeah, please Um, do. Then I saw my parents. My father was talking to a conscript by the gate, wearing an expression I'd never seen on him or anyone else before. An extraordinary blend of weariness, rage, worry, and humiliation. And I wished I could shrink where I sat grow smaller and smaller until I disappeared into one of the tiny holes the ants had opened in the walls. Then all of a sudden, there was my mother, kissing the conscript's hand. Their voices didn't reach me where I sat. I watched the scene play out silently. My mother's body, rarely seen outside our house, stooped in the reeking yard to kiss the hand of a young conscript who could do nothing in any case, not for her and not for me. My mother abasing herself without realizing that she had no hope of getting anything in return. I watched my father step back and stare at her. His back was turned to me, but I could picture the shock on his face. It was in that moment that I understood, safe. If you rebel against fate, if you insist on being master of what you call your destiny, the insolence, then life itself might come out and force your mother to her knees. That day, life chose to let me go, though my release had nothing to do with my mother's kiss. They left us in the yard past noon, then undid our cuffs and made us sign papers, and we were allowed to leave. As I signed my name to testimony I had never spoken, the officer said with a smile that we'd meet again soon. Since that day, I've made a habit of keeping that little bag packed. When I still lived at home, I kept it under the bed, a secret from my mother. I stood by the front door after I moved. Sorry, it stood by the front door after I moved. You would know my home, or to be precise, the place where I was staying, by a small bag packed and ready by the door. Right. Yeah, that's that's a very sort of uh, also lovely peripatetic but a very different sort of um peripatetic than than in Hamdi Abu Ghalayl's novel and it ascribes i would say a, i mean more explicitly in a way a motivation to the decision to be 
to leave home, to be, to not settle down, to emigrate, right? I mean, it, it draws this pretty explicit line between not being master of your fate and facing this, this injustice, you know, it's unjust. He's arrested for, for protesting. He's, he's, right. he's humiliated for no reason. His, uh, and this decision to, to leave, um, where none right, of that it's much, is it's much more reflective. Yeah, no, it, it reminds me much more, more of the political a bit, right. you know, Right. Reminds me much more of Amrozet or um, Haizem al Wardani, uh, a, a very different sort of. Both of these feel like um, very Egyptian books to me, um, but in sort of different threads of, um, of Egyptian literature. Hamdi, much yeah. more like Khiri Shalabi or. Um, uh, uh, you know, lots of of the like sort of outrageous drug stories, um, right? Or it, something like um, I don't know, maybe even a bit uh, not the, not the drug story, but the sort of like collective voice, the neighborhood thing. I was thinking about like Ibrahim Aslan's Malik Al Hazin, right, Cat. Yeah. You know, um, also this great tradition of like humor and making light of very serious things. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think even also that book, um, Women of Quarantina, you know, which is a yes, kind of yes, 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 crime me a lot story. Latouchi's novel, yes. Yeah, whereas, like you said, slipping is 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 in is in another kind of genre that's that's very strong right now, which is more of a kind of. Uh, there's a sort of like it's it's on the edge between personal essay and fiction and almost mm. like philosophizing. Uh, you know, it's it's almost metaphysical in its concerns, like what's real and what's not, and what do we experience and what do we not? And uh, you know, and and the tone is is more about I mean, I think that the the two tones are always there in Egyptian literature and Egyptian life, right? Like Right. I mean, in every, you know, humor is so often uh, a, just an, another way of dealing with with loss, uh, with with difficulty, you know, right. um, and uh, and so they're not maybe as far apart uh, as they as they seem, but certainly the the effect and the mood is very different. Right. Yeah. No. I mean. E e yeah. Even where. Um, yeah. The the movement is is similar, uh, or the the issues are similar. Yeah. The mood is the mood is very different. But they both feel um, exceptionally Egyptian to me, just in different in different mm. ways. Yeah. Slipping has almost this quality of like you're not sure if it's a dream or it's real. Like it's very untethered from. The narrator could have dreamt the whole thing up, and that kind of comes up multiple times in the story. Uh, there are these elements, you know, the woman he loves sort of can reproduce any sound. You know, there's these really yes. magical elements right. to the story, kind of. Although then he slips in, well, she does sound effects for animated movies. So then you're sort of like, oh, there is, we haven't completely moved out of the realm of real and he actually does that really cleverly multiple times where there's a scene for example you know they see someone walk across a river 
Mm, right. You think, oh, I'm, I'm in the realm of the miraculous, the completely magical realism. And then he tells you, what's well, because the tide is low at this one time of the year. And so people take this as a shortcut and it looks like they're walking across water and it's just like five inches of water. Right. And so he recreates the effect you would have of thinking something was unbelievable and you had no explanation for it and then finding it. Um, and that's done very well, um, as is the kind of like, tenuous connections that he keeps making between the different stories. I think it's quite hard to sort of plot a book like this that seems plotless or almost plotless, but isn't. I mean, there are, there is a pattern. Mm -hmm. There is a narrative pattern, right? It's just that you don't, you can't, it takes a while to identify it. You know, they're both sort of narratives that resist a little bit being summed up. You know what I right. mean? Or being... I think they, yeah, neither one of them gives you an answer. Are, are we supposed to be pleased at the end of the novel? Are, are, are we supposed to be sad for him? Are, oh, he doesn't tell us how we're supposed to feel about it. Um, I, I don't think it's positioned in such a way that, that we're made to look in a particular direction. We can decide for ourselves what we think about what the story means. Yeah. Well, and people should, you should check out both of these books. They're really, they're really quite worthwhile. Um, and I think with that, we're going to close out for this week. Yes. Thank you so much for talking with me about these books. Ah, pleasure as always. Um, and also don't forget to check out the new issue of Arab Lit Quarterly. Okay. Bye everybody. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.